0: that we we failed to get mentioned is that after this morning's worship service there is a care group fellowship meal for the northeast care group that is uh typically the group that falls in the category of flowery branch in gainesville zip codes like 30542 30507 Uh, Bradley, I think it's 30543, but I think he's the only one out there. Uh, But if you're in that care group that's headed up by the Bonadies, the Rise, and the Hopkins, we encourage you to stick around and join us for this meal. Even if you didn't come prepared to stay, we still invite you to stay. Uh, But wanted to make sure that you were reminded of that immediately after this service in the fellowship hall. Now, Last week, I introduced this new series entitled Membership Matters. And I imagine there are some of you out there thinking, why do we need to talk about this? There's a lot of other stuff we could be talking about, a lot of other topics Kyle could be addressing. Why do we need to talk about membership? Well, have you ever heard someone say, I love Jesus? but not the church. It's become an increasingly growing and popular sentiment among believers especially. It's it's become so popular that the Barna Research Group has even done some research on that topic. In fact, earlier this year, they released some data showing that 7 in 10 Americans say they view Jesus positively, but only 47% of Americans said they had a, have a positive view of local congregations. Now, I know you can't read all the little fine print on this sheet. It's up there just so you think that I actually have the research to back up what I just said. But if you go to Barna's website, they released this data back in May of 2023 of this year. 70% of Americans say they view Jesus positively, but less than 50% view the church the same way. And one of their chief reasons for a negative view of the church, according to the research Bonner did, is the hypocrisy of its members. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Seventy percent of people in America are okay with Jesus. They just don't like us. What does that have to say about the representatives of Christ? You know, many believers are opting to try and live out their faith apart from the church because of this. But there's an inherent problem with that strategy. It's not biblical. As one preacher pointed out, every Christian is three things. Every Christian is a believer, meaning that there are certain things they believe, certain truths they believe about Jesus Christ. Every Christian is a believer. Every Christian is also a becomer. That means that every Christian is trying to become more and more like Jesus. It's that whole idea of transformation. And the third thing every Christian is, they're a believer, they're a becomer, and finally, they are a belonger. Meaning that every Christian is supposed to belong, to be connected to the body of Christ. And here's the thing, most people don't have a problem with the first two. Everyone would agree that that in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, they have to believe in him. And most are going to, to agree that they have to become more like him. But it's that third category that some people bristle at. The idea that I have to belong to a local body of the church. In my ministry career, I've heard a number of times... Believers tell me that I'm a member of the church in general, I just don't believe I have to be a part of a local congregation. Maybe you've heard someone express that too. And this morning, what I want to do is talk about the idea of placing membership. Now, last week, as we defined what the church is, I pointed out that the church is an organism rather than an organization. And I contended that since the church is an organism, that means membership is something that is practiced and not merely placed. And I'm certain someone out there thought to themselves, amen! Someone finally proved that I don't have to place my membership with a particular congregation I can go on blissfully operating as a free agent Christian for the rest of my life. But to whoever might think that way, let me just say, hold your horses, buckaroo. Because there's a lot the Bible has to say on the subject of membership, and in particular on the necessity of placing it. Let's start with this. How do you become a member of the Lord's Church? Well, we just read from Acts chapter 2 a moment ago, verses 37 through 41. And I want you to notice that in this text, the Bible says three things happen when you are baptized into Christ. The first thing that it says happens there in verse 38 is, when you are baptized into Christ, your sins are forgiven. The second thing it mentions, also in verse 38, is that when you are baptized into Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a reference to the the Spirit's function as our seal or our deposit, to use biblical terminology, assuring our, our, our status as those who have been saved. Now, don't get that confused. You can lose that status. But you receive that status initially when you are baptized into Christ. But the third thing that often goes unnoticed is what is stated down there in verse 41. And that is that when you are baptized into Christ, you are added to the church. So you are, when you are baptized into Christ, your sins are forgiven. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you are added to the church. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that, or, or excuse me, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that those who received Peter's word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. But added to what? It didn't specify there if you look at verse 47. Added to what? To answer that question, consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Paul said that as Christians we were all baptized into one body. That's what those Christians in Acts chapter 2 were added to. But what body is Paul talking about? In that same chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you scroll down to verse 27, you'll see that Paul identified that one body as the body of Christ and said that we are individually members of it. So once you are baptized into Christ, you automatically become a member of the church. Now last week, We pointed out that the term translated church is ekklesia in Greek. And a better rendering for it would be an assembly, or a gathering, or a congregation. And so Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 tells us that when you are baptized into Christ, you are added to the assembly or congregation of believers who make up the body of Christ. But we need to understand what that means. You see, the New, in the New Testament, the term church is used both universally and locally. What I mean is that the term church is sometimes used in reference to all the assemblies, all the gatherings, all the congregations associated with the body of Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus was clearly referring to the universal church when he declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He wasn't just talking about one congregation. He's talking about all the congregations that constitute his church. Or consider what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, when he declared that Christ is the head of the church. He's not just talking about one congregation. He's talking about all the congregations. Christ is the head of every church that is a part of his body. So there are occasions when the term church is used universally. But there are also times when the term church is used locally in reference to a congregation or congregations. For instance, in the book of Revelation, we're told that that message was specifically sent to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, John is not implying that there are seven different universal bodies of the Lord's church. He's not indicating that there's more than one body of Christ. Instead, he's saying that there was more than one congregation, more than one assembly, or more than one gathering of the one true church in the province of Asia. And if you skip down to verse 11 of that chapter, he tells us their names. He tells us that there's one in Ephesus, one in Smyrna, one in Pergamum, one in Thyatira, one in Sardis, one in Philadelphia, and one in Laodicea. Seven different congregations of the one true church. And in several passages, Paul will make reference to a single congregation that's meeting in someone's home or in some place. He sends greetings in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15 to the church in Nympha's house. He addressed the letter of Philemon not only to its namesake, but also to the church that meets in Philemon's house. And to the church in Corinth, he sent greetings not only generally from the churches of Asia, but specifically from the church in Aquila and Priscilla's house in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19. And in each of those occasions, Paul is addressing a single congregation, not the entirety of the Lord's church. But maybe the best. Example or the best place in all the Bible to see this difference, to see how the word church is used universally and locally, is Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 5, Paul made reference to a particular congregation when he sent greetings to the church in Aquila and Priscilla's house. Yes, this is the second time that particular congregation gets mentioned in the New Testament, and Paul sends greetings to that specific congregation. But then if you skip down to verse 16, he makes reference to the universal church when he sends greetings from all the churches of Christ. He sends greetings to one particular congregation. He sends greetings from all the congregations. That's the difference between the word church being used universally and the word church being used locally. And all that is to say that when you become a child of God through baptism, you automatically become a member of the universal church. But becoming a part of a local congregation, that's not automatic. You must decide in which local congregation you will practice your membership. So when we talk about placing membership, we're not talking about being added to the churches of Christ. We're not talking about being added to the Lord's church universal. We're talking about identifying where you're going to practice your membership. Now you may be thinking, yeah, I get that the Bible clearly teaches that we're added to the universal church, but show me where in the Bible does it say I have to place membership." In a local congregation and I have to admit that placing membership at a local congregation is never specifically commanded in the Bible what I mean is that there's no verse in which God said thou shalt place membership with a local congregation of my church but that doesn't mean the Bible is silent on the subject The expectation of biblical membership in a local body of believers is implied by a number of passages in the New Testament. And this morning I want to share those with you so that we all understand why we propose the idea of placing membership in a local body of the Lord's church. You see, placing membership is implied in passages that talk about contribution. Here's what I mean. We were just in Romans chapter 16. I want you to stay there. I want you to look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 16. It's there that Paul writes these words. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. A servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now in the New Testament there are times like this where a letter of commendation or a word of commendation is sent to a church that is unfamiliar with a particular person. Phoebe is not the only one to receive such a commendation. You'll find it mentioned for Apollos in Acts chapter 18. You'll see one for Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And you'll even see one for Mark in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. But what I want you to notice here is that Phoebe is apparently unfamiliar to the churches and Christians that are in Rome. So Paul provides a commendation for her so that the church in Rome would welcome her. Now what's particularly intriguing about her commendation is the way in which Paul identified her. He referred to her as our sister. And he referred to her as a servant of the church at Sincreia. In so doing, he identified her relationship to the universal church by indicating that she's a sister in Christ. And then he identified her relationship as a member of a particular congregation when he mentioned her affiliation with the Sincrea Church. Did you notice that? Universally, she's our sister. But specifically, she's a servant of the church that's in Sincrea. Universal and local. And when I see that reference to her local relationship, it reminds me of what Paul had to say about membership in a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 12. Verses four through six, where he wrote these words For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Now, in a, a future lesson in this series, we're going to t- talk more about this about our using the gifts that we've received from the Lord for the benefit of the entire congregation. We'll get to that. In the coming weeks. But right now, what I want you to particularly pay attention to is the fact that there is an expectation that our gifts, our skill sets, our abilities get utilized in the context of the church. And when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, to those Christians in Rome, and said, Hey, I commend Phoebe to you, she's a servant of the church in Syncrea, what he's saying is, It's in that congregation in Sincreia that she's been using her gifts, that she's been exercising her service, that she's been practicing her membership. Paul is communicating the fact that she's contributing to the church in Sincreia. That's where she's been doing it. And so welcome her, because guess what? She's going to contribute to your congregation as well. You see, placing membership with a local congregation is a declaration of where you intend to practice your membership. When you place your membership with a local congregation, you are identifying where you will use your gifts for the benefit of the church. That's what you're declaring when you place your membership with a local congregation. If you don't place your membership with a local congregation, you can still use your gifts but no one knows where you're using them. And you may be neglecting people who need them because you refuse to give them to a particular congregation. So when we look at Phoebe and the commendation she receives from Paul, in it we can see a local reference to her membership, not just a universal reference to her membership, and we can see what Paul is describing as her membership, her practice of service within the context of the local local congregation. But you know what? That's not the only time that membership is implied in the New Testament, because placing membership is also implied in passages that talk about submission. You know, the Bible clearly teaches that it was the practice of the first century church to appoint elders in every congregation. Paul and Barnabas specifically did this on their first missionary journey. Paul commissioned Titus to remain on the island of Crete in order to appoint elders in every town. And Paul instructed Timothy to remain in Ephesus in part to appoint elders based on the list of qualifications that he provided. And so based on Paul's personal example, as well as Paul's instructions to other Christian leaders... We can see that the practice of the first century was to appoint elders in the Lord's church wherever there were qualified men. But what's important to note about the appointment of elders for our study of church membership is the scope of their oversight. Look at the instructions that Peter gave his fellow elders in First Peter chapter one, in the first two verse, 1 Peter chapter five, in the first two verses, Peter, who is an elder, who is a shepherd, says this: "So I exhort the elders among you." As a Felder, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Now, that phrase, that is among you, is important. By using that phrase, Peter limited the scope of an eldership's responsibility and authority to the congregation in which they were appointed. That means that while all Christians are subject to Christ's headship, not all Christians are subject to a particular eldership's oversight. And this is reinforced by some other passages in the New Testament. For instance, Hebrews 13, and verse 17, the author of Hebrews instructed his readers to obey your leaders, not all leaders, your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Not all souls, your souls, as those will ha- who will have to give an account. Or you can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, where Paul instructed Christians to respect those who labor among you. Not those who labor among everyone, those who labor among you. And those who are over you, not those who are over everyone in every congregation, but those who are over you at your congregation. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. See, in all these passages, the instructions apply to the relationship between a believer and the leadership at his or her local congregation. Such instructions are the basis for congregational autonomy because they limit the oversight of each congregation's leadership. However, we must also acknowledge that these instructions are the basis for placing membership as well. Why? Because how else will a particular eldership know whether or not they are responsible for your soul? How else will you know which particular eldership you are expected to obey and submit to? You see, these instructions create a bond between you as a Christian and the shepherds of a particular congregation. And if you don't identify which congregation you are going to practice your membership at, then that leadership won't know that they're to keep watch over your soul. You might argue, well, all eldership should keep watch over my soul. That's not quite logical now is it that's not very practical the shepherds of this congregation have somewhere north of 400 maybe 500 souls that they will give an account for that they are responsible for watching over How many elders do we have right now? We have 10, 9, we're 9. 10. Think about that ratio. 1 to 50. One elder to 50 members. That's a lot of souls to keep up with, isn't it? Per elder. And we're just one congregation. And you expect elders everywhere to be concerned about your soul and to know about your soul and to be watching over your soul and to be caring for your soul. The concept of placing membership is implied in this relationship between shepherd and sheep in the local congregation so that your soul can be cared for appropriately. But if you never identify with a local congregation, that leadership will never know that you're falling under their authority their oversight, their shepherding in particular. And so this dynamic of shepherd and sheep implies congregational membership at the local level. But there's one other thing we should talk about because placing membership is also implied in passages that talk about congregational accountability. See, throughout the New Testament, there's an expectation that members in the body of Christ will hold one another accountable. We're instructed to bear one another's burdens and to restore anyone who is caught in any transgression in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And if you go over to the book of James and to the fifth chapter, we're instructed to confess our sins to one another and to bring back one another when one wanders from the truth. Such an emphasis on correction and confession implies accountability between brothers and sisters in Christ. And such accountability takes on a congregational context when you consider Jesus' process for addressing impenitent sin in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15-17, through 17, where he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church." And if he refused to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. According to Jesus, the process of such a confrontation starts with a private conversation and is followed by a small group mediation prior to telling it to the church. But, but to what is he referring when he says tell it to the church? Is he referring to the church universal or is he referring to the church local? Let's just apply a little bit of reason here. Up to this point in the process, Jesus has kept the people involved at a minimum. It starts one-on-one. You add two or three witnesses. He's keeping the amount of people involved in this process to a minimum. So do you think, That suddenly he's saying we should involve the maximum? That all Christians everywhere, around the globe, speaking different languages and in different cultures, all need to be involved in this process, whether they know the individual or will encounter the individual in in, in the remainder of their life. No, the context suggests that what Jesus is saying is that when the one-on-one confrontation doesn't work and the small group mediation doesn't work, you then take it to the local congregation, the congregation with which this individual fellowships, the congregation with which, in which this individual is involved, and that's the final step. And we get support for this by turning over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul addresses a situation in which sin needs to be confronted. Now, you have to remember that Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 are directed specifically to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's how he began the letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the local congregation of God's people that assembles in Corinth. And then, you need to understand that what Paul is addressing is a situation in a specific situation in Corinth in which a member was actively engaged in a sexually immoral relationship. And the problem is that the congregation in Corinth, not the churches as a whole around the world, but the congregation in Corinth had not corrected this individual. Instead, they had embraced this individual. They had accepted him as he is. They allowed him to remain in their fellowship, while also remaining in a sinful relationship. And apparently they took some pride in this because Paul called them arrogant. Maybe they were proud because they thought they were showing how loving and gracious they were. Maybe they were proud because they weren't casting the first stone. We don't know why they were proud. But all of this is addressed to one particular congregation. Paul's not writing to Rome and saying, hey, you Christians, y'all need to go deal with this guy in Corinth. Hey, you Christians over there in Philippi, y'all need to make your way to Corinth. No, he's addressing one local congregation. And he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since they would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Do you get what Paul is saying here? He's saying that there are those inside the church and there are those outside the church. And if you have someone inside the church who's actively engaging in sin, particularly those listed here, then you have a responsibility to correct them. And that corrective action culminates ultimately, if sin is not repented of, in a form of what we now call disfellowship. You have to be in fellowship to be disfellowshipped. And what Paul is saying is that the ultimate way to show this individual that their sin has to be repented of and corrected is to distance yourself from them because they are a part of the body there in Corinth. And you need to show them that their sin is indicating that they're not really a part of that body. And so we have this situation in a local congregation that is being addressed by Paul and must be corrected by that local congregation. So we need to understand that placing membership within a local congregation is a declaration of where you intend to be held accountable. A declaration of the assembly with which you intend to be intimately connected. A declaration of who you intend to fellowship with and a declaration of who you intend to discipline you when you're impenitent regarding your sin. And it's impossible to be held accountable. It's impossible to develop intimate relationships. It's impossible to fellowship if you refuse to be part of a local body of believers. So implicit in such accountability instructions is the expectation that we will place our membership, nay, we will practice our membership in a local congregation. So while the Bible might not provide a verse that commands you to place your membership with a local congregation, it does present expectations of membership that can only be fulfilled through involvement in and commitment to a local congregation. So I want to ask you, where are you practicing your membership? To what specific leadership in the body of Christ are you submitting? With what specific congregation are you fellowshipping and holding yourself accountable? To what particular congregation are you contributing your gifts? If you can't provide an answer to those questions then dare I say you are living contrary to the pattern of the New Testament. And I know there are probably some here who have not placed their membership with a local congregation, and I want you to understand this is not a pitch for you to place your membership here. I hope that you would, because I believe this is a great body, a great congregation of the Lord's body. More importantly... I'm encouraging and challenging you to place your membership with a body of the Lord's church that you can use your gifts, that you are willing to submit to the leadership of, and that you are willing to be held accountable by. It doesn't have to be this one, but it should be one because that's the expectation of the New Testament. If you're here today and you're not a member of the Lord's church, you have not been baptized and therefore added to the church, then we invite you to make that decision. Because there are so many benefits to being added to the church. The most important one being that your sins are forgiven. The most important one being that salvation has come to your life. But you also get to be part of a family. A family that cares enough about you to correct you a family that cares enough to pray for you, a family that cares enough to confront you when you need help. And if you're here today and you are already a member of the body of Christ, not just universally, but locally, let me challenge you and encourage you to recommit. Recommit to submitting to the leadership of your local body. Recommit to utilizing your gifts for the benefit of that body and recommit to the accountability that should be maintained within that body. This morning we're gathered here as a body. Maybe you need to join. Maybe you need to recommit. Maybe you need to change your attitude towards it. Whatever your need is, we invite you to make it known. All together we stand and sing.